doers of the word and not just hearers only. Father, guard my mouth, my mind, and my heart, Lord, that what would come from me would not be for my own glory, Lord, but solely for yours alone, for you are the only one who is worthy of all glory, honor, and praise. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Perfect. Looks like we're working now. (laughs) So Pastor Tim has been going through a topical series about the church being together. Um, How we come together and what we do when we are together is a big part of what it means to be a Christian. So I thought for today, it would be a good idea for us to take a look at a text that will help us define what the identity of a Christian is. So let's go ahead and look at 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. Starting with verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. My Christian ethics professor um, brought up an important topic in one of our Zoom meetings a couple months back. We were talking about the labels that are given to us or that we give ourselves. And sometimes these labels are added to a a label that we are very familiar with, the, the label Christian. We hear things like, I'm a liberal Christian, or I'm a conservative Christian. We're even starting to hear things like gay Christian or non-binary Christian. Now, we'll, we'll hold off on the theological issues with some of those labels, but the main observation that um, we had as a class during this discussion was that We as Christians should not be labeling ourselves that way. There is nothing that should ever come before or should qualify our Christian identity. There should be no fill-in-the-blank here Christian. And, And if that's the case, then it is certainly important for us to know what the true Christian identity entails. So in our text, we start with but you. So so starting off with a conjunction, but, this means that our text is contrasting something that happened prior. So to understand this, we need to look back a couple verses to see what Peter had been talking about. If we look at verse Um, The whole beginning of 
chapter 2, and especially um, verses 7 and 8, the later part of 7, we see that Peter is talking about those who do not believe. Um, He says that the stone, the cornerstone, that is the cross of Christ, causes those who disobey, those who don't believe, to stumble and become offended. The cross is foolishness to human nature. But that's not who we are as Christians. The cross isn't foolishness to us. It does not cause us to become offended. We love it so much that we put it on our pulpits. So our first step in defining what a Christian is, is that Christians are a chosen race. There are a few things going on here with the word chosen. First, Peter is bringing us back to the beginning of the formal revelation of his grace. He he did this in the promises that he gave to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. We see this wording mirrored in Deuteronomy chapter 7, the same verses that Aaron presented to us earlier for our call to worship. It says, you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. And it goes on as Aaron showed. But there's something important there. Notice that being chosen wasn't based on anything the Israelites did. In fact, it's actually in spite of everything that they did or will do. Peter draws us there because it's the same for us. We're chosen not because of anything that we did or anything that we are, but simply because God loves us. It's all based solely on God's mercy. Without his mercy, without the cross, there's nothing for us to be reconciled. But thank God that he made a way. The second half of verse 10 in our text tells us that once we had not received mercy, but now we have received mercy. Think about that. In our original state, we were children of wrath, devoid of any spiritual life. We were dead in our sin. But God, he chose us in our wickedness while we were still sinners and gave us a heart of flesh, drawing us to himself through the cross. What was foolishness to the world is so precious to us. We need to remember we were not chosen for our honor or glory. We were chosen for God's glory alone. We didn't deserve it, but God is gracious. So no one can boast about being chosen. But we take comfort in that fact. 
So we're a chosen race. Christians are also a royal priesthood. Again here, Peter is drawing us back um, to the Israelites. We use, he uses um, a reference from Exodus chapter 19, verse 6. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you shall speak to the people of Israel. So in order to unpack the significance of being a royal priesthood, we first need to understand the role of a priest in regards to God's people. So... During the Old Testament period, a priest was someone with authority who was able to mediate between the people and God. They went to God in the tabernacle on behalf of the people, and they came out to the people on behalf of God. As Christians, we're to do something very similar. Now, we're not meditating or mediating in the same way. We don't offer sacrifices for people. Um, we don't really um, do that exchange. We know that the one true mediator is Christ, who intercedes for, for us as well as others. However, we do still perform some of the functions of a priest by representing God to the lost. God chooses many times to show himself to unbelievers by using our works and our words. We, we act as ambassadors, representing our king to the people of a foreign world. And we're not just priests. We're royal priests. What, it, what does that mean for us to be royal? Well, we can draw our attention back to a text that we had looked at in the spring, Romans chapter 8, verses 14 through 17. It tells us that we are children of God and fellow heirs with Christ. We're counted as God's children. And, and since God is the king of all, that makes us royalty as well. Princes and princesses. So not only do we represent our king, but that king that we represent is also our father, who we love dearly. So we're a chosen race. We're a royal priesthood. Christians are also a holy nation. Again, this is pulling parallels from Exodus 19, same verse. If we, we want to define the word holiness, holiness can be defined as being set apart. It, it means being different from the world around us, as well as being unmixed and uninfluenced by the world. Now, we don't take this too far. We don't remove ourselves from the world, but we stay in the world, yet unmixed. If I were going to draw a picture to this, I would say to think about 
oil and water. You, you can put the two together, and they, they occupy the same space, but they don't mix. The, the water does not corrupt or dilute the oil. Similarly, we need to be in the world, engaging with it, but not being diluted by it. We're different. We have different habits, different motivations, desires, goals, and all of that is wrapped up in a different culture. It doesn't take too much for me to say, for you to realize the difference between a culture in here and a culture out there. We see that very clearly today. What is being set apart here? We're a holy nation. When we think of a nation, what comes to mind? Well, it's a group of people. Usually they, they're called by the same name. For example, American, Canadian, British, Japanese, so on. It's under one government with the same laws. All the people in the nation use the same currency, the same system of measurement, the same health care system. There's one word that sums up this idea, all these ideas of a nation. It's unity. Unity. Many leaders in our country, the name one that exemplifies this idea, Abraham Lincoln, they have understood just how important unity is to a nation. Without unity, a nation will crumble. As a holy nation, as Christians, we must have unity with one another. Now, now, that doesn't mean we always agree. There's always going to be disagreements. But in those disagreements, we don't hold on to grudges. We find common ground, and we keep looking towards the cross. It's the cross that unifies us. Our lives, our culture, it should show that we are all people of the same nationality, people of God. In verse 10, we see once that we were not a people, but now we are God's people. At one point in time, we did not have any unity with one another. A apart from Christ, we wouldn't get along as well as we do. Even with Christ, sometimes we don't get along. If we didn't have Christ, we would lie to one another. Uh, we might steal or conduct dishonest business with one another. We would argue about silly, unimportant things. And we would probably spend as little time together as possible, if any time at all. However, because of the cross, because of God's will and mercy... We have become a people. I would go even further and say a family, but the text doesn't say that. We're a people unified in truth and holiness. We all strive together for a singular goal, 
to become more and more like our Savior, Jesus. And as we strive to grow, our unity will help us stand against any force that should come against us. So we are chosen in the mercy of God. We are a royal priesthood called to proclaim. And we are a holy nation together as one in unity. And Christians are a people for God's possession. The Israelites in the Old Testament foreshadow what the church of Christ was to become. We are God's possession. We serve God. We exist for his pleasure. We belong to him. Why, why do we own things? For example, why did we choose our current car that we drive? Why, why do we have game consoles, cell phones, and board games? What is the purpose of the things we own? We find enjoyment in them. They please us. Their purpose is to bring us happiness. It's similar with God. Similar, not exact. We, we must remember that God does not need us. That, that God is sufficient in and of himself. He doesn't need us the way we might need our dream car or need that cell phone. But he enjoys us. We belong to God for the purpose of pleasing him. Let's look at what Zephaniah said about the people of God. This is Zephaniah chapter 3 verse 17. It says, The Lord your God is in your midst. A mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. We're not used to this kind of language being used for us. The, the Lord will rejoice over me with gladness. He, he will exult over me with singing. As children of God, we are in a position, by his mercy alone, to please him. And, and how do we go about pleasing God? By serving him. By, by giving him glory, honor, and praise that he so rightly deserves. We worship him, and we imitate him. We become obedient to his word, and we strive after our example, Christ. I, I enjoy babies. I, I don't know if everyone knows that, um, but I really do. I, I enjoy little ones, and, and I, I just find them fun to be around. Uh, however, do, do you know when I enjoy babies the most? It's when they start to imitate everything you do. You smile, and they smile. You laugh, and they laugh. You clap your hands, and they clap their hands. 
Uh, th- there's just something special about that. And I think maybe that is so special because it's a picture of what we should do as Christians. That we imitate our Savior. That, that we are God's possession to bring him glory by imitating Christ in obedience. So, you might be asking, what's the point? Why is this what we are? Why are we a chosen race? Why are we royal priests? Why are we a nation for God's possession? What's the main purpose of our identity? We find it in the second half of verse 9. It's so that we proclaim God's excellencies and give him glory. That, that's what it all boils down to. Um, at the bottom of your notes, there's a quote from the Westminster Shorter Catechism. It's the first question. Um, the catechism is a series of questions that are then answered to um, highlight important doctrines and theological points in the faith. And the first question is, what is the chief end of man? What is our main purpose? Our main purpose is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's what it all boils down to. The reason that we are called out of darkness and into light is for the purpose of proclaiming the glories of God. Now, I understand we don't use the word proclaim often anymore. So let's define it real quick. Merriam-Webster's dictionary defines proclaim this way. It is to declare publicly, typically insistently, proudly, or defiantly. It's to announce something with a sense of importance, a sense of weight. To proclaim God's excellencies is a twofold idea. First, we worship. Just as we worship him for his pleasure, as his possession, our worship also proclaims his excellency to others. I think one reason I love when we're outside is because when we worship, anyone in earshot is able to hear. By by our acts of worship in song, in service, in our behavior, and in our sacrifices, we show people just how great God is. As we pick up groceries for our neighbor who's still a little bit wary about going out, as we call people just to see how they are, as we pray for people who are suffering and the people who are serving in risky environments, doing those things, we proclaim that God is in control and that he is good. So in our worship we proclaim, we also proclaim by evangelizing, by sharing the good news. We, we see the Great Commission in Matthew chapter 28. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. In medieval times, there was a person called a herald 
uh, who, who would stand in the center of town and shout new laws or commands from the king um, so that the common people would know what's expected of them. Basically, this guy was the news. Uh, that's also a proclaiming. We, we, have we as Christians have access to the greatest news of all time. We usually call it the good news, but, but I would challenge that it is the greatest news. That God is perfectly holy and just. And we have, by our very nature, earned his wrath by our sin. However, God did not leave us in our brokenness. He did not leave us in the darkness, but sent Jesus to live the perfect life that we could not live. And die a substitutionary death that we deserved but couldn't pay. And he paid the price for our sin. And Jesus, being fully God, did not stay dead. But he rose from the grave, showing his power over sin and death. And he ascended to sit at the right hand of God, to intercede on our behalf as our great mediator. We simply must trust in the work that he accomplished on the cross and in the grave, and in him alone. Then our sin is paid for, and we are given, clothed with the righteousness that Jesus earned, and counted as children of God and heirs with Christ. And so then our purpose is to share, to proclaim the great goodness of our God and Father. And we proclaim to a broken and wicked world that only deserves destruction, as we all do. And in doing that, we bring God glory. It's our job as royal priests. It's our duty as a holy nation. And it's our joy as God's possession to bring pleasure to the one who saved us. Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 10, verses 32 and 33. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. We must, must proclaim the excellencies of God. It is why we are called out of darkness. It is a vital command from our King. In the current state of the world, as things ease up and make their way a little bit more to normalcy, our evangelism may still look a little bit different. Uh, there may be many who are still affected by this pandemic. It still might be a little bit more of a challenge to meet someone for coffee or to talk around around a golf or to discuss God on an airplane. However, even in the midst of all of that, we can and we must evangelize. We must share the good news. There's many ways. We, we can make phone calls. Uh, we, we can meet people through social media, one of the few good uses of that. Uh, we can talk face-to-face -face at a distance using programs like Zoom. 
uh, the opportunities to evangelize are still there. It, it might just take a little more creativity. So let me ask you this. Is an eternal soul, someone created after the image of God, worth the time it takes to figure out evangelism in our current life setting? Is it worth it? So we, we began with a question. What is the identity of a Christian? We've discovered that a Christian is a chosen race, royal priests, and we together make up a holy nation for God's possession. Our identity as Christians is fully packed with God's mercy and grace. In response to our identity in Christ, we must proclaim the excellencies of our God. We do this through worship and through evangelism. By engaging in both of these areas of proclamation, we give God glory. Proclaiming the glories of God is our main focus as Christians. Uh, another way that we see the glory of God on display is in observing communion. Uh, the communion table draws us back to um, and reminds us what has been done for us in Christ, to be brought from darkness to light. It's one of the clearest pictures of God's grace and mercy. Jesus gives an object lesson here um, to show us who we are as Christians. He, it's, there's nothing special about this. It, this is just normal bread, normal grape juice. Uh, there's nothing special about it. Uh, there wasn't anything special about the bread and the wine that Jesus held. It's a symbol. It's a picture to help us remember. We remember things more easily when they involve more of our senses. So Jesus took some unleavened bread, and he broke it, tore it in front of the disciples. It gives us a picture, a picture of his body and how it would be torn apart for us. He then took the fruit of the vine, which would have been wine for him. It's grape juice for us. Again, it's just a picture. He took it, and he poured it. As a picture of his blood. His blood being poured out for us. We know that, that crucifixion was a, a bloody means of execution. And, and we know that without the shedding of blood, there can be no remission of sin. We all know the ways that we have lived in the past. When we were still lost in darkness, we need to remember what has been given to us through Christ. Now, I, I don't want to be rude, but if you are with us this morning 
and you have not submitted and trusted in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, if you have not made that commitment, I would ask you to, to refrain from taking this. It, it would be meaningless for you. You're not going to be filled by, by communion. But if you recognize that you are a sinner, lost in darkness, and that you need a Savior, someone to bring you into the light, just as we all needed, then, then I would invite you to make that commitment even now and become a member of Christ's holy nation and proclaim his glories with us in communion for the first time. At this time, um, if you do not have a cup, please come forward and grab a cup. And then we will um, take a moment to pray over both the bread and the cup. And then we will partake of the bread together and then the cup together. <laughs>